Do not, my friends, become addicted to water. It will take hold of you, and you will resent its absence. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld, H2O minutes at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are talking about minutes three and four, which begin with Kevin Costner drinking a liquid that only seconds ago was his own urine, and it ends with a winch pulling something up from deep underwater. At the tail end of last episode, we were very generous by saying that the liquid that comes out of this tap at the top of this section of minutes is not exactly the pee that was poured into the top but an earlier batch but it does sound pretty funny to think that that's how it went and i'm looking at this still and it's so oddly designed that i can imagine the production designer being like hey if we just make it complicated enough people will just hand wave and say you know there are so many tubes and bulbs and things it probably just works i don't need to worry about it it reminds me of a classic chemistry set mm-hmm. with tubes and beakers and things, and chemistry happens there. So if it happens there, it can happen here with tubes and vials and whatnot. It reminds me a bit of the still from MASH that Hawkeye had <laughs> in his tent. Uh, the Mariner is not Hawkeye. I'll say that much. He doesn't have the same swagger. This would be a completely different movie if he had any swagger at all. <laughs> Can you imagine this movie if Alan Alda played the main character? Ooh. Be like, oh, well, you know, there's a... I, I can't do a good Alan Alda impression. I can't do any good impressions. New listeners will learn that quickly. Old listeners already are abundantly aware of that. But just be oh, look at all this water. <laughs> I shouldn't even try. If it were Hawkeye instead of the Mariner. He wouldn't be alone. Hawkeye is not a singular character. He's not isolated. Yeah. He functions best by bouncing off other characters. Right. It would be very similar to the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy, where you're introduced to your main character, and then you're also introduced to the woman that is also on their ship. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if the Mariner had any swagger at all, he would also have a crew. Mm Mm-hmm. He would have people that he cared about. But no, here we are at the beginning of the movie. He is all alone. Probably a good thing because he's just standing out on his deck. Drinking his own pee. Drinking his own pee, not having any shame about the situation. But then again, it's Waterworld. It's a different world. The rules have changed. They have. (laughs) And one of the rules is one sip for me and one sip for my lime tree. Exactly. It feels almost warm. The way he shares his water with the lime tree. Mm -hmm. Like, he cares enough about this tree to give it half his water. The nice thing about the lime tree is that he can enjoy the water before he gives it back to the tree. That does outline the concept of limited resources. You use everything to its absolutely full extent. Mm -hmm. That water mixing with a bit of saliva so that he could rinse out his mouth... Is perfectly good. It's the same water to the tree. Yeah. Tree don't care. Yeah. That's why the mariner likes hanging out with trees. Yeah. (laughs) 
to talk about this lime tree just a little bit, there's honestly, there's not that much to talk about, but yeah. to bring it up, it's most likely a dwarf key lime. I started out by trying to match the leaves mm-hmm. until I realized that is not a natural shape of a leaf. <laughs> there are no leaves shaped like that. So later on in the movie, we see him chewing on the leaves. So I suspect that he has bitten or ripped off enough of the leaf that the leaf can still function as a leaf, which has produced these three-pronged, very wavy, uneven, unnatural-looking shape of the leaf. Mm -hmm. That he has consumed enough of it without causing damage to the tree itself. Speaking of damage to the tree, the shape of the trunk is very jagged. It looks like a bonsai tree, honestly. It does. I suspect that is from damage. It's probably grown from a clipping as opposed to from a seed. Mm-hmm. So it already carried some inherent wonkiness from its mother tree. Yeah. I think that's why it looks the way that it looks. And key limes typically take one to three years to bear fruit. So this tree has, I think, six limes on it. So it must be very healthy to produce six limes. And he has been tending this tree for years. Or he just bought it off of somebody who cared for it and tended it so well that it was able to bear so much fruit. So much healthy fruit. It looks great. Yeah, there's like six limes on there. And they're good-looking limes. I just did a cursory Googling because... When you said bonsai tree, it made me think, oh, that's right. Bonsai trees are still trees. And there is a process in tree maintenance called grafting, where you graft branches into a tree and then the branch grows into the tree over time. Now, I don't believe that you can graft a fruit tree branch into a bonsai tree and have that branch bear fruit. That seems like a bit of a tall order. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm not a horticulturist. I'm not a plant person. I can't tell you for sure. So there might be something to it. Yeah. The important thing is that here at the top of this pair of minutes, we get to see the Mariner's face for the first time, which means it is time for a character slash actor introduction in the vein of all the other times I've done this (laughs) on the Mad Max Minute. It's tradition. The Mariner is played by Kevin Costner. He is our title character. He is the... Waterworld guy, I guess. Uh, Kevin Costner was born on January 18th, 1955 in Linwood, California. He is the third child of Bill Costner, a ditch digger and ultimately an electric line servicer for Southern California Edison, and Sharon Costner, born Tedrick, a welfare worker. As a teen, he sang in the Baptist Church Choir, wrote poetry, and took writing classes. At 18, he built his own canoe and paddled his way down the rivers that Lewis and Clark followed to the Pacific. In 1973, he enrolled at California State University at Fullerton, where he majored in business. During that period, Kevin decided to take acting lessons five nights a week. He graduated with a business degree in 1978 and married his college sweetheart, Cindy Costner. He initially took a marketing job in Orange County, but everything changed when he accidentally met Richard Burton on a flight from Mexico. Burton advised him to go completely after acting if that's what he wanted. So... Costner's big break came in the big chill. Even though his scenes were cut, he still caught the attention of Lawrence Kasdan, who you might remember as the guy who wrote Empire Strikes Back. So when Kasdan made Silverado in 1985, 
Costner got a lot of good exposure from that movie, which ultimately helped his career go further. 1985 is also the year that Kevin Reynolds put Kevin Costner in Fandango as the starring role. Costner's acting list includes 62 credits spanning from 1981 to the present. He has also directed three films, Dances with Wolves in 1990, The Postman in 1997, which is another post-apocalyptic movie, this time set on land, and a movie in 2003 called Open Range, which is a cowboy movie. I think that probably the first time I saw Kevin Costner was Dances with Wolves. The first time that I cared about Kevin Costner was probably The Bodyguard. Mm. The Bodyguard, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Dance of the Wolves, and The Postman are his top four movies on IMDb. Okay. So you hit most of them. Yeah. (laughs) Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was also a big movie for me. I am totally on board with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because it is one of the VHS movies that my grandmother had, and she would (laughs) let us watch it when we went to visit her. So my brother and I would sit down, watch Robin Hood, Grandma and Mom would visit for a while. That's what we did. Nice. The Bodyguard was one of those like really important movies in my teenagerness. Mm-hmm. It came out when I was 11. So I was just getting into figuring out what I liked and having my own tastes. And the Bodyguard soundtrack was my first CD. So yeah, he was part of my growing up. So getting back into the film proper. The Mariner, he waters the lime plant, and suddenly the entire boat is rocked by something. He has to catch himself on his purifier pump, and we switch to the back of the boat. It looks like the center of the trimaran has a winch on it, and that winch is going down into the water. My initial reaction to seeing something like this was to scoff. Like, oh, it's Waterworld. It's so deep. There's no way that he could scrape something along the bottom and catch on something. But we're not exactly told where he is in the world. We don't know what he's trawling over at any point in this movie. It could be anywhere. So it's totally feasible that he could catch on something. It is. I think that this whole scene of him catching something on the bottom and then diving down is, I suppose it falls into the category of a red herring. Mm-hmm. It leads us to believe that he has this whole system where he's dragging the bottom and then going down and retrieving what he can. And they go through steps to make this look normal with the timer and some depth gauges and the bubble balloon bag thing out on the water. They go through the trouble of making this look normal, even though throughout the movie we learn that it's not normal. All of the stuff that you say is a red herring is what I assume his day-to-day is. Him alone finding things. No, normal for him. Other people don't do this. Oh, okay. Because he's special. Okay, so I was misunderstanding. Yeah, I think this is a good way to introduce that this is what the Mariner does, and we're going to see later on once the Drifter shows up, that what the Mariner does is special. Yes. So I'm totally on board with what you're saying. Yeah, he makes it look normal. If a normal person in Waterworld had this sort of setup, they would need some sort of crane yes, to pull stuff up from the bottom because they wouldn't be able to go down and unhook their trawling nets. I have questions about the timer that he sets up Mm -hmm. with the pellets and the dropping the pellets. Once they reach a certain weight, it trips a trigger. Why does he need that? Based on what we know so far... 
that seems like a normal human thing because he only has so much oxygen underneath that bubble and his lung capacity to work with. So it's a timer for however many minutes and then he's done. He needs to come back up. But we know, having watched the whole movie, that he has no timer. So why is there a timer? Why is he using a timer? I know the timer is there to make us think that he needs it because they don't want to reveal to us yet that he has gills. Mm -hmm. But why does the Mariner have a timer? My theory as to why he sets a timer for him spending time under the water is because if he stays down for too long, someone will come along and think the boat is abandoned. So the timer is not so much there for, oh, I need to resurface again. It's I need to go check on my boat. Okay. To make sure that it hasn't gone anywhere. Okay. I like that explanation because in the next chunk of minutes, there's a line about another hour and I would have upgraded my boat again. So there does seem to be custom in this world. And if a boat is abandoned, there's a customary amount of time for it to be abandoned before it's fair game. So I like that explanation of the timer. I also like how this boat has so many useful things on it. Like it's got the winch at the back. When he goes down into the center section of the boat, there are so many things hanging around. We get to see this giant piston in the middle of the structure. And it's turning because as we saw in the wide shot back in the first chunk of minutes, there are these giant foils that are spinning in the breeze. And that mechanical motion is getting transferred down this post along these pulleys. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you about those. They're functioning like a windmill. Yes, they are specifically something called a Darius wind turbine. It's a vertical axis wind turbine used to generate electricity from wind energy. It usually consists of a number of curved aerofoil blades mounted around a rotating staff or framework. And the curvature of the blades allows the blades to be stressed only in tension at high rotating speeds. It's something that you'll see in Canada, the Magdalene Islands, Taiwan. They're good for more compact wind turbines. Okay. And he's got a giant one because, you know, if you get the space, you might as well. But he's taking that energy and he's directing it straight down into this mechanical works. And from what I read... His boat being in trawling mode, because we discover later on that it transforms, the mechanical energy of that turbine spinning goes into the pulleys, and the pulleys go to trawling motors, as well as the winch power. So he's going along using small turbines underneath the water to push him forward with a lot of force. Like, he's not going fast, but he's going strong. Like a tugboat. Exactly. And that's what he's pulling along the bottom with. And then later on, we'll see the boat transform from trawling mode into sailing mode. But one of the other reasons why he has that timer may be to switch from trawling mode to winching mode because when the timer drops away, it triggers the gearbox at the back of the boat that sets the winch turning. Okay, because he doesn't have a crew... To work that gearbox, mm-hmm. he has set up an automatic, after X amount of minutes, exactly. change directions. Yeah. All right. Thank you. The important thing in setting this up is to show that he is self-sufficient because he has these automated systems that he's built up. Plus, I really like the look of 
the timer because it really does look cobbled together and the idea of the pellets slowly dripping out one by one is a really cool way to do it because it's not like he's setting a clock or anything like that. It's just little weighted pellets going like an hourglass onto this little drip pan. I enjoy the cleverness of the ship immensely. Mm -hmm. It actually gives me hope for humanity that we are capable of stuff like this. We are (laughs) capable of surviving. Right. We just don't because we don't have to. The efforts of engineers are placed elsewhere Mm -hmm. because they don't need to be placed into boats like this. (laughs) And I think it's important to say that this is a boat. It's not a ship. Right. The distinction is size, right? I think you can put a boat on a ship, but you cannot put a ship on a boat. I'm a daughter of a submariner, and submariners call submarines, which are technically ships, boats. So I know the distinction between the two, but as a submariner's daughter, I flout that distinction. (laughs) So (laughs) I may call ships boats. Okay. I'm not sure how many things we see in this movie outside of, of course, the Exxon Valdez that can be called a ship in this movie. I agree. Like most of the things that are floating around are just boats. Mm Mm-hmm. And over the course of these two minutes, once the Mariner dives into the water, we get a lot of loving angles on this trimaran. And we get to see a lot of its nifty features. I'm sure the set designer was just so happy about this. Yeah. Because set designers put so much work into making it look real and making it feel real for the actors. And many times that doesn't get to translate to the screen in such a detailed way. Mm-hmm. So these shots really put the set design on display. Yeah. I really like the suspended cargo netting between the three hulls of the trimaran. I think it adds a really cool expansion of space. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you'd be stuck to walking across those narrow spans and it'd be a lot of wasted area. But it adds... Walkable space without adding a lot of structure to it. I really like it. I love the hammock hanging off to the side that he can hop into. The harmonica attached to the wind chime is really fun. I love the wind chime. It reminds me specifically of in Fury Road on the dashboard of Nux's car was like this little bird thing, mm-hmm. bouncy bird thing. Yeah, a little bobblehead. Yeah, that was cobbled together from bits and pieces, just found around. And many of their things, their objects are similarly cobbled. So this wind chime really reminded me of those. I do need to point out in the shot where we see the harmonica doodad, it's an incongruous shot with what we saw before because there are sunshade canopies that are strung up in that shot that you didn't see before. Right. And there's also a shot like from the very back of the ship, just looking at the ship. Mm -hmm. I'm calling it a ship. It's a boat. Jeez. (laughs) Looking at the boat where there are no canopies at all. Yeah. You can't even see the hammock. Now that I'm looking at it, there's a lot of changes throughout these views. Mm -hmm. The important thing is not to focus on the way that the boat changes as we fade between different loving angles on the boat. The important thing is that we are showing the passage of time 
Yes. <laughs> because we finally go back to the drip pan and it is much more full of pellets than it was before. This seems like a good spot to interrupt talking about the minute specifically to talk a bit about the boat, the trimaran here. Oh, yes, please. So I found an archived GeoCities page on the <laughs> internet, which gives me no end of satisfaction because I remember when GeoCities was a brand new thing and anybody could make a website and it was the thing to do. And then GeoCities just went away one day. But this site was completely dedicated to the trimaran. So I copied all of the text from the page on that website where it talks about designing and building the trimaran. It was designed by Mark Van Pategum and Vincent Leroy Prevost and built by a company called Lagoon. It is 60 feet long or 18.23 meters. They built two of them in France, one for actual sailing and one for all of the transformation sequences. The first trimaran was launched on April 2nd, 1994, and they broke the 30-knot barrier on September 1994. Dennis Gassner, who was one of the people who designed it, wanted to make sure that the boat was equipped to reflect the nobility of the mariner's heroism while establishing his down-and-dirty ingenuity. Basically, the trimaran is the mariner's Batmobile. I really like that comparison. It is... An elegant boat. Yeah. I think that elegance is kind of brought down a notch by all the situationally appropriate grime and doodads, mm -hmm. but it's graceful. I find it a little funny that the example I went to first and foremost was that the trimaran is the Mariner's Batmobile when I really should have just said that the trimaran is the Mariner's black on black interceptor because it serves the same purpose as the Interceptor. It really does. That's a perfect comparison. And there is a similar level of attachment to it as well. And a similar amount of losing it and regaining it. Yeah. He struggles to keep control of this boat in a similar way that Max struggles to keep control of the Interceptor. So Dennis Gassner, who provided most of the quotes for this source that I'm reading from, he loved the Japanese Transformer cartoons. And so he wanted to incorporate the idea that the boat could exist in two forms, trawling and sailing mode. And so he went to the people who built it and he said, can you do that physically? And the folks said, yeah, we can, we can build that. Sure. And so they decided that they would build two based on that. One that would sail specifically and one that would have all the mechanical doodads. Because while in the movie, you see all of that stuff happen on its own. Behind the scenes, it was actually several people pulling on things and making it happen physically. It wasn't all automatic, which kind of breaks my heart a little bit. I want to believe. <laughs> it was real to me. Yeah. Hey, that's the important part. Yeah. I think that if the Mariner could do it, we could do it. We mm. just chose not to. Yeah. It's cheaper to have a crew manipulating it and the cameraman selectively shooting angles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people who designed it, they figured that the Mariner would have thrown together a lot of found things. One of the interesting details and something that we need to remember for the rest of this movie is that aside from the smokers who have a giant tank Anchor. of gasoline 
there is no stored energy in Waterworld. There's no batteries. There's no fuel for engines. There's no vacuum-packed flywheels. It's all wind and water-based energy. So you're directly transferring mechanical energy in one form to mechanical energy in another form. Okay. It's also in that interview that I read where they reveal that the gearbox at the back of the boat was from like a Ford pickup truck. <laughs> and that the helm of the Trimoran, which we get to see shown off in many scenes in this movie, was designed that way specifically as both a directional helm as well as a crank system as a way to put the Mariner in more of an active pose, lean back and pulling on things and leaning this way and that, as opposed to just putting him behind a wheel, which would have been a lot less dynamic. So good movie making. Exactly. But getting back into the chunk of minutes that we're watching proper, we get to see the drip pans filled up with pellets and eventually it trips. It falls away, it pulls a lever, and that lever sends the big winch at the back of the boat spinning. And we get our first peek at a depth gauge. Now, I want to get into this depth gauge in next episode, so I don't want to go too far into it. But I really love the ingenuity that everything is pulley-based. That there's not a lot of gears. It's all strung stuff up based on tension. So that way you don't have to worry about machining parts. Mm -hmm. Because I imagine that machining parts is very difficult because there is no stored energy that you could pull from. Right. It requires a lot of rotational energy to machine something. Mm -hmm. Which I'm sure you can set up some sort of windmill thing to generate power. But yeah, if you don't have a battery mm -hmm. and you're not actively using the power, it's just lost energy. So it's a very tricky situation that we find these folks in. I'm thinking about ways to mechanically store energy as opposed to chemically storing energy, which is how our batteries nowadays work. Mm -hmm. And it makes me want to go research that. Now, one of the best ways I've seen to mechanically store electrical energy is a tower setup that uses pulleys and cranes to lift heavy blocks high mm -hmm. up into the air. And yeah. then when the sun goes away or the wind dies down, the weights start to drift downward and the spinning of the pulleys attached to those weights is what then generates the electricity. And we get to see that there are weight-based mechanical things that happen on this boat. A lot of the sail pulling is yes. counterweights. I suspect that as we watch this movie closely, we will see ways that energy is stored that might not be first on our thoughts because in our everyday we don't really store energy mechanically our energy is stored chemically yeah so we might not think about it in the sense of a battery but i suspect we'll see a lot of that i'm sure so with the winch spinning and the gauge moving we're going to put a pin in this episode so come back next week we're going to see the mariner return to the surface with his deep sea treasures only to find bum 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 that he is not alone the Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmen. Thank you for joining us for episode two of Waterworld. We'll see you next time.